Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 53, Five Lessons in Adventurous Leadership from Lewis and Clark, America's Greatest Explorers. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. I'm excited to be talking today about lessons in adventurous leadership from the story of Lewis and Clark. And we're also going to be taking a question from Mark regarding our last episode, 52. He wants to know, we talked about the why and how of storytelling, but as a leader in a large company, when should he be using storytelling? But first, I just want to say I'm excited to be back. This is my first day back in the studio uh, after taking my family on vacation out to Montana. That was an adventure on its own. We had a great time. We did something new and exciting. We took the train all the way out to Montana and back to Michigan. And uh, what's it, we le- met new friends on the train. It's a completely kind of an old school uh, way to travel, but something my, my kids kind of have always been excited and trying out. They're now ages 10 through 18. And it was kind of now or never. And it was interesting to see what kinds of other people were taking the train. We met a lot of Amish people on the train and uh, really wonderful people, had great conversations with them. We also got to know a lot of the great employees that work for Amtrak and gave me some nice stories to share with my friend Barry Melankovic, who is the chief human capital officer at Amtrak. You know, you they get to know their passengers pretty well because on a, on a cross-country train trip like that we it, it was almost 40 hours of travel each way so you get to be you get in pretty comfortable cozy quarters but uh, we made some some new memories with our kids and it was a tiring trip we did a lot of hiking out in glacier national park and uh, that kind of sightseeing a lot of uh, once we got out there we rented a car and spent a lot of time in the car with our kids driving through the mountains and saw some beautiful sights and we are home uh, tired and happy to be back. Uh, also stopped and, and visited with um, family members and my in-laws and uh, had a great time. My kids are all excited and ready to jump back into school. And another interesting thing, while we were gone, of course, I had pre-recorded some episodes of Engaging Leaders so that they would be running while I was on vacation and we didn't have any interruption in the show. But while I was gone, we had released episode 52 and passed the one-year mark for Engaging Leader. I'm excited about that. I'm grateful for everybody who's been listening to us all along and I'm grateful for all the wonderful people I've met and guests we've interviewed and the just fascinating concepts we've learned from our guests and from the books that we've read. And I hope you've been having a a great time with us on this journey as we enter year two of Engaging Leader with this episode 53. While I was on vacation, on my way out west, riding the train, I was reading a biography of Meriwether Lewis. It was written by Stephen Ambrose, and it was called Undaunted Courage. Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the opening of the American West. And it was so fascinating. We were actually passing 
a lot of the very sites that the Lewis and Clark expedition saw on their journey from St. Louis out to, well, Meriwether Lewis actually started in Washington, D.C., but and, and as he went, uh, traveled toward St. Louis, he was organizing his crew and gathering supplies. So the, the official crew with Clark set out from St. Louis and went all the way to the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific coast, several thousand miles away. Uh, a couple decades before, the first ships along the west coast had discovered the mouth of the Columbia River, and by taking measurements, had been able to determine the longitude and latitude, and were able to figure out exactly how wide the continent was. And then you have our third president, Thomas Jefferson, negotiated with Napoleon the purchase of the Louisiana Territory which was not just Louisiana, but uh, several other, all the other states immediately to the west of the Mississippi River. And uh, that gave a a big chunk of additional land to the, for the United States. And then there were additional territories beyond that. So basically in 1803, just a few years after the Revolutionary War, we still didn't quite have a secure nation. We still were constantly being threatened by the British as well as we had uh, Spain and France who was very interested in all those lands on the other side of the Mississippi. But on July 4th, 1803, Thomas Jefferson announced the purchase of the Louisiana Purchase and he'd already been working with Lewis who was a protege of his, 20 or 30 years younger than, than Jefferson had been having Lewis plan this journey. So the very next day, July 5th, 1803, Lewis sets out to complete, to to undertake this major task, which would take him over three years and was a famous, from, from day one, was a famous expedition across America. It meant so much to this young country in terms of finding out what was in the other two thirds of the continent. It meant so much for the expansion of the United States, not as a an empire like the, the other nations were interested in that area, but it was the expansion of this notion of liberty that Thomas Jefferson was the foremost proponent of, where the United States would be allowing people to settle in an area and create a self-governing state that could then be part of the United States. It wasn't that they would be added into the original 13 states with equal standing with them. That was a revolutionary concept at that time. This trip also had significant meaning and purpose as far as commerce. The primary goal of the expedition was to find an all-water route to the West Coast to make it easier to conduct trade across North America whether with Europe, but also with the Far East. And there were many different kinds of scientists who were very interested in this expedition. Thomas Jefferson was not just a politician. He was first and foremost a man of the Enlightenment and was very scientifically minded and was had very close relationships with a number of scientists. So this was a, an expedition all about uh, what plants would be discovered, what animals would be discovered, what kind of geological findings would Lewis be able to document. It was a map-making expedition. They were taking longitude and latitude markings all along the way. And also ethnology. They were 
studying the Native American tribes that they met on the way. What kinds of cultural practices did they have? What was what kind of language did they have? And was there a common origination of those languages so that we, we could kind of figure out how did these Indians get there and are they all related or did they come from different original locations? So there was a very important, significant purpose to this journey, but let's not be mistaken, this was a terrifying journey into the unknown. Extremely dangerous they and extremely difficult. Lewis was taking a team of a little over 30 people upriver. They had to paddle up the Missouri River, hoping that if they took that to its source, if they could discover the source of the Missouri River, that it would be relatively close to the source of the Columbia River, and then they could sail down that. And whether they were going upstream, paddling against the current, very difficult, or downstream, battling rapids and waterfalls, and they did, as well as potentially hostile Indians, and and they did that too. They had to deal with cold and heat and mosquitoes and malaria, uh, other kinds of diseases. Oh, and not to mention starvation, theft from the uh, Native Americans, and potentially even theft from uh, white people they, they may run into along the way. On the way back on my vacation, I was reading the latest issue of Fast Company magazine, and on the cover of that is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. And you know, it's been less than 20 years since Amazon launched in 1995. And you want to talk about a team of people that has gone into uncharted territory. When they launched in 1995, I have to be honest, I was just graduating from college. I had only just heard of the World Wide Web. I knew what the internet was, but I still was scratching my head at this thing they called the web. And here's a company that was going to figure out how to make money selling things on the internet. And we, we know they made it through the dot-com bubble and, and burst. And now are, is, is one of the top companies that everybody else is trying to keep, just keep up with. And they are moving ever faster, ever forward. In a recent Harris poll, they were identified to have displaced Apple as the number one most trusted company in the world. So Jeff is taking his team constantly into uncharted territory. He is exemplifying adventurous leadership. And that's exactly what Lewis and Clark were doing. And if Amazon is the most trusted company, Lewis and Clark were America's greatest explorers, and they had 100% trust from their team, which was absolutely vital given how interdependent everyone on that team was. So we're going to look at five lessons in leadership from Lewis and Clark. And the first two are the two that Lewis himself was the most aware of, the most self-conscious of, that these two were absolutely important. And that's because they weren't just important to him as a leader and as a military guy, but they were important to him as a Virginia gentleman. Number one, honesty. Lewis and Clark, absolutely honest. And Lewis, in particular, prided himself on his honesty. He would tell you the news, whether it was good or bad. That's one of the reasons why Jefferson picked him to lead this very important, very famous expedition. Because he said, you know, he told other people, if Lewis tells you something, it's that's the way it's going to be. If he describes something... We don't have to guess what it's like. He's gonna. He's not going to make things up. He's not going to exaggerate. He's going to tell us 
exactly what it is. That was important, not just for his superiors, for Jefferson and the other people that Lewis was reporting to. It was important for his co-captain, but also for the people on his crew. They were often faced with situations that were surprises to them, because as they went into uncharted territory where no white people had ever gone, they were constantly making friends with Native Americans along the way and trying to get intelligence about what was ahead. Do we, is there, are we going to run into waterfalls ahead? How's the river up ahead? What, if it forks, which way should we go so that we can continue trying to go west? We don't want to, we don't want to go too far out of the way. But a lot of times that intelligence came back incorrect or incomplete. They would be going up the river and there would be a fork where no one told them there was a fork. So they all suddenly had a choice of three rivers, if you will. The river splits into three and they got to decide which way they're going to go, which of those three forks they're going to take. For a soldier on a crew like this, it can be very demoralizing to not be able to count on your commander to have the right information. Constantly asking, where are we going, where are we going? The commander saying, we're going to go up here five more miles, and then we're going to turn left. And instead, they go one mile, and there's a fork. But I should say that there's also this factor that the commanders were in complete control of the lives of the soldiers, including whether or not the soldiers were going to get to go to the expedition all the way to the end. They signed up because they wanted to contribute to such an important expedition, such a famous expedition. They wanted to go down in history. They also, there were some rewards that they that they were promised, some land and some money, but primarily they wanted to make history. And there was a very good chance that not all of them were going to be allowed to continue all the way to the end. The original plan was to get to a certain point where they were going to winter, spend the first winter of 1804 to 1805, and there many of them sent home from there. And similarly, there would be other spots where they probably would be, keep taking ever smaller crews toward the end. And so if you feel like your commanders are telling you one thing and then something else happens, you can't trust them. And that is exactly what was happening because they just didn't have complete, 100% accurate information. But the farther they went, the greater the morale and trust happened on their team because they discovered over and over again that Lewis and Clark were absolutely honest and they were never holding back any information that they didn't have. And Jefferson was also proven right that the journals that Lewis kept were 100% accurate, including things that Lewis described when it came back. Some scientists said, well, that can't be. That, that, that animal doesn't exist, or that mountain couldn't be where he says it's going to be. And for a while, science disputed it. And then as time went on, new discoveries came up, and they, discovered, they found out that Lewis was right. So he prided himself in honesty. And number one, that is probably his, was his greatest attribute in, in terms of importance in leading an expedition team like that, leading people into uncharted territory. Number two, perseverance. This was important both for Lewis's superiors and for his team. While this expedition was underway, there were two or three other expeditions similarly commissioned to accomplish other purposes, such as uh, trying to see how far north they could go, for example, or and to find the source of the Mississippi River, and those all failed. In that 
time, the technology was so poor in, in terms of transportation. They basically just had horses and they had boats that were either human powered or wind powered. And they had, uh, and, and also tech uh, communication. So you, you had such a hard time keeping in touch with your superiors to get advice or guidance or to report back or to get help. You were, when, when they left St. Louis, the Lewis and Clark team was on their own. And Jefferson needed to know that they were going to persevere no matter what. And he had 100% confidence that Lewis would because he had known Lewis so long and had observed his perseverance. But also, it was important for the men. One, they quickly realized that this guy, Lewis in particular, but Clark as well, was never going to give up. That he had a important purpose, a mission in mind, and he was going to make it there and back if it killed him doing so. And so, although they, as the team, when the team first started out, they had some issues with grumbling or near mutiny, those kinds of things. And the Lewis and Clark had to manage that. And, and in some time, cases, that meant getting eliminating some of the officers. But within the first few weeks, they had those issues sorted out. And this was a very tightly knit band all the way to the end. And they, they just saw through challenge after challenge that these guys were not going to stop. It was also important, the perseverance was, was not just toward the mission, but they were going to persevere in taking care of the team, of each person on the team. They saw this in terms of immediate emergencies that came up. As they're going upriver, it's very slow going, paddling upstream. And so usually one of the two co-commanders would be in the little fleet of vessels, canoes that was paddling upriver. The other would be on the shore exploring, scouting ahead to see which way they should go, maybe hunting um, with a with a, a small team of hunters, maybe taking measurements, maybe uh, uh, journaling about some specimen that they found or, or, or uh, drawing a picture of it. And on one of those, Lewis was exploring with uh, a couple other guys, suddenly found himself sliding. He had stepped out to where it was too steep and the ground unstable, was sliding down this steep embankment toward a cliff, caught himself at the last minute and was able to kind of pull himself into relative safety. He thought he was alone at that point, but instead he heard, God, God, Captain, what should I do? He looks over and one of the, one of the guys on his team had similarly fallen in the same trap and was hanging there by one hand. He had compl- such complete faith in Lewis that he was asking Lewis for help and did exactly what Lewis told him to do. Put your hand here, put your foot there, you know, squeeze over here, now give me your hand. Uh, I don't know that many people would have trusted somebody else or paid attention to them. You'd just be trying to scramble up yourself. So that was just an example of this complete trust that came out of the perseverance of Lewis. In the same way, when they completed the whole trip, went to the Pacific Ocean and back, Lewis had to fight like heck to get the promised rewards for everybody on his team. In fact, he was able to get even better rewards than he had originally promised them. And that was not easy. That took perseverance as well. So number two was perseverance. Number three, emotional intelligence. Now, that's all the the rage to be talking about emotional intelligence in this day and age. But in 1803, 
It's very unusual to find somebody with, number one, the sensitivity regarding morale that Lewis had, and number two, the awareness of especially other people's emotions and how they needed to be managed. Now, this was, I will say, imperfect, and I'll explain a little bit why, but let me first say what he got right. He had very much a sense for how everybody on the team was doing, and he knew exactly when to take a break, when to bring out some food to lift everybody's spirits. He even had a large amount of whiskey along, and he would issue what they call a gill, which was about four shots of whiskey, enough to definitely raise the spirits of everybody, basically have a little party. He knew when to ask uh, one of his men who was a fiddle player, hey, pull out the fiddle, let's get some music going, let's uh, let's get some dancing going, and let's have a little party here. Um, he knew when to push people harder, when to encourage them, when to tell a joke, when to be tough. He knew how close he should be to his men, and yet what kind of distance he should keep from them. So they trusted him and they cared about him, but they didn't necessarily view him as their such a tight buddy that they didn't wouldn't obey him when the going got tough. There was one point in the journey when the original plan was to send three men back so that they could take the scientific specimens that they had been gathered so far and a copy of the journals that they had taken so far and get those back to civilization. He had already done that once. They had reached a certain point and sent a a crew back. But this time now he had, this was further along in the journey, more months had gone by, a very tight-knit group. And Lewis had two reasons not to stick with the original plan. One was they had gone through some pretty dangerous territory with hostile Indians, and a three-man crew was was going to be particularly vulnerable. But the deal-breaker for him was he thought that sending three-man back might, quote, possibly discourage those who would in such case remain. So he was, at this point, very sensitive to the morale of his remaining crew. And if he took three of them uh, away and basically saw that, okay, this is no longer a tight-knit crew. We're, we're, we're going to keep peeling people away. He recognized that they had a long way to go in front of them, and he needed 100% interdependence on each other, 100% trust, and very high morale that this crew was going to stick together through thick or thin. And so that his emotional intelligence basically got a, a read on his team and said, no, we need to keep this crew together to keep everybody's morale high. Now I want to admit up front that I would say this is he was he had a high level of empathy and emotional intelligence when it came with other white guys. He and to a lesser extent with the Native Americans because he had a very high esteem with them. He recognized that they were just as intelligent as he was, although he really didn't he had a harder time understanding what made them tick and what motivated them and he often uh, for example, the gifts that he gave them, they generally didn't care for. Um, he he had, was trying to give them gifts and win their friendship, and often that didn't work because he was giving them things they didn't care about. You know, a a, uh, a medal that showed Jefferson's face on it, and a an army jacket, and as opposed to the types of beads or useful 
tools and uh, consumables that the Indians were actually more interested in. But where Lewis really didn't fail as far as emotional intelligence was with blacks and with women. He was unfortunately a slave owner, as was Jefferson. Jefferson at least had an amount of self-awareness. He hated slavery, but he couldn't separate himself from it because he was so dependent on it economically. But he could see that even though I try to be this enlightened gentleman and I try to be kind and gracious to everyone, there is a barbarism in me because I wield this power over other people and I have done so ever since I was a young boy. And he saw himself treat them harshly, more harshly than he really wanted to. And he also, uh, this is this is Jefferson, but it, the same thing happened with Lewis. They didn't really viewed slaves as fully human. In fact, Lewis had a very low opinion of blacks because all he saw of them was his slaves who were very poorly educated, who were poorly treated, didn't have enough food to eat, um, their families were constantly getting split up. And so they had low, let's say, values as far as honesty and work ethic. They just didn't have... So he saw them as lazy and uh, untrustworthy. And of course, that's really just the situation that slavery put them into. And uh, similarly, with women, he just didn't view them as equals and he didn't understand them. Uh, he, it's very famous, he had Sacagawea was the only woman on the crew. Her husband was hired to be an interpreter and in that deal, they got Sacagawea as well. Sacagawea was extremely important to the success of this of this team not only because for her assistance in as a translator uh, in helping them communicate with the Indians but she also uh, knew some of the geographies that they were traveling through she had been abducted as a, as a young girl and at this point was an older teenager and then also there were tribes that probably would have attra- attacked them but seeing a young Indian woman and, and mother with them, because uh, she had her baby with them, based, sort of immediately communicated that this the this team of white people was friendly and not hostile. But Lewis was pretty ignorant of what made Sacagawea tick. He, it was clear that he and Clark both admired her and saw her as valuable. But, for example, when they got into the territory that Sac- where Sacagawea grew up and where she had been stolen from by a warring Indian tribe, Lewis remarks in his journal how surprised he is that Sacagawea showed no emotion in the event of entering this territory. He figured she should be very overjoyed at being back there. And he said, I, I suppose if she has enough to eat and a few trinkets to wear, I believe she would be perfectly content anywhere. Well, if you stop and think about the fact that she is a slave, she was the wife of her husband, but she was actually his slave. He just happened to marry her. So she was a slave. She was the only Indian in this group, the only mother, the only woman, and the only teenager. You can imagine that she's probably going to keep a very tight grip on her emotions and not express them to the people around her. And there was a point later in the in the journey where she did express emotion when she ran into uh, another Indian that she had known from her childhood. So she was not an emotionless person. She was just keeping a tight lid on that. And 
Lewis was just demonstrating, in that case, a lack of emotional intelligence. But generally, with the people that he understood, the white men, he had very high emotional intelligence and a high sensitivity toward the morale of the team. Number four is shared decision-making. The buck stopped with Lewis and Clark. He, he First of all, he completely shared his decision-making with Clark. They were a true team. Even though Lewis had the authority to be the only commander, he insisted on making Clark his 100% co-commander because he had such complete trust in Clark and knew from past experience with him that he needed Clark to have that level of authority. But he, So the buck stopped with them, but they practiced return of authority with their team. Whenever it was appropriate, they shared decision-making with them. For example, uh, the winter of 1805 to 1806, they actually took a vote from everybody on the team as far as where they should spend the winter. It was a difficult, there was no perfect place, and there were pros and cons, and they let everybody have a say in the matter, including Sacagawea and including the one other slave on the team, a, a black guy named York, who was Clark's slave. And as far as history can tell, this was the first time ever in America that a black slave had been allowed to vote and a woman had been allowed to vote. And it was also the first uh, voting that anybody's aware of happening west of the Mississippi. They didn't practice 100% shared decision-making. The buck did stop with them. There was a, a point when they got very high up on the Missouri. It split into two, one of which uh, eventually Lewis named the Marias. And everybody on the team, except for Lewis and Clark, was wanted to go to on the I think it was the right fork, which which ended up being becoming the Marias River. Lewis and Clark, after studying a lot of signs, decided that they should go up the left. The team was a hundred percent in disagreement about that. Everybody else wanted to go the other way, but they very cheerfully followed the lead of their men. I mean, they 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 said, "Well, look, we we think it's this way, but we are happy to go wherever." you want to lead us. They they trusted these guys to do what was right, even though, you know, as far as we can tell, we should be going that way. But even in that case, so the, the buck stopped with Lewis and Clark, but they still respected the decision-making of their team enough that they did, even though they took the, the main party up the way they thought they should go, they did send an additional smaller reconnaissance party further up the other river just to see if they would find any other signs to prove them wrong so they didn't get to go too far out of their way. And in fact, they did, it was proven that Lewis and Clark were proven to be right. And so they, they made the right choice there. But probably even more importantly, they demonstrated a great deal of respect for their people in how they handled that very difficult decision. And number five, the last leadership quality that we're going to talk about is purpose-driven. I already talked to you about the, the importance of this mission but this is something that Lewis talked about over and over again and had his team fully convinced in the fact that they were making history. They were doing things nobody else had done. They were going to remember this their whole lives. They they had asked different members of the team to be keeping journals because this was every day was so momentous. And in fact, some of those, those guys took steps to get those journals published when they returned. So this was a team that knew they're making history. This had significance from the different perspectives as far as commerce, the pride of America, this very young nation, 
and in terms of science. All, for all those reasons, it was important. And Lewis talked about it so much that the, the men got it. They got his vision. They got the purpose. They were willing to be constantly putting their lives at risk to make this purpose happen. And once they got outside of those first few weeks of the of the expedition, that was no holds barred. There was never any discussion about quitting or turning back. That's a sign of a leader that talks about the vision enough, doesn't get sick of talking about it, because you do have to keep reminding your team about it over and over again. So those five qualities are honesty, perseverance, emotional intelligence, shared decision-making, and purpose-driven. Now I want to answer a question that has come up about our last episode 52, which was how to use stories to engage people. Mark asks, you explained the why and how of storytelling, but I'm wondering when. As a leader in a large company, I am frequently communicating good news, bad news, important information, and changes. Do I need a story every time? I would say, no, you don't need a story every time, but... When in doubt, use a story. You really can't go wrong. When you realize you have something to communicate, whether it's news or a change or information, you need to stop and think about what is going to engage people in this message that I'm communicating. Most of the time, just sharing information isn't enough. And most leaders find over and over and over again that a story is the easiest way to make that happen because of the emotional connection that you make and the ability to for people to call it to memory. So, I mean, I, I almost never don't have a story somewhere in the information or I'm somehow using a storytelling principle. If I had just, even just with this podcast episode, if I just rattled off the five things I learned from Lewis and Clark, it wouldn't have the same kind of life or impact if I didn't have at least a few stories to tell to illustrate some of those qualities. So if you're a leader in a large company and you're introducing a change, you may want to be ready to share the story about the context of the change. Here's why we decided that this change was important. Or here's the, 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 the process that led to this decision. Or here's the background of this change. Or here's an example Here's a story about a customer or an employee that illustrates the need for this kind of change. Another tactic that we frequently use, in fact, we're working with a a large company right now, a Fortune 500 manufacturer, who has a lot of information they want to share. So they're going to be calling together employee meetings. They're going to be lucky to get all this information within a 45-minute meeting, might even be an hour. And if they weren't careful, it would go a lot longer than that. But they're, they're going to try to get it down to 45 minutes. But 45 minutes to go through information that you think is terribly important. In this case, it's the HR department. A lot of times what HR thinks is important, I mean, it is important, but to employees' day-to-day needs, the employee doesn't think it's as important. And so in five minutes, you're going to start losing people's attention. And so we are being very careful about how do you make sure they get this and you hold their attention. And then what we're doing is two points in the meeting, we're going to have them show a short video that tells a story. So that, that both sucks people back in if their minds have started to wander. But a lot of times those videos are stories. An easy way to do that is to have a leader or a, an employee tell their story, illustrating why this is important. And you just have a, an off-camera interviewer ask them questions. And then you edit 
you, you grab a few sentences that the uh, that tell the story. You, you keep the interviewer out of it, and you just end up with a, a one or two or three minute video that tells a nice story. And that's that's one way. If you're not maybe the the best person to tell the story, or it's going to be more authentic coming from somebody else, or if you just need to break up a meeting like that, that's a, that's one way to get a story in there that will engage people. Well, thanks for the question, Mark. And for anyone else, if you have a question about the current episode or a past episode or any topic on leadership communication or engagement, you can reach me by email at jesse at engagingleader.com. You can leave a voice question. We can play that on the podcast. If you want to call in the U.S., that is 989-787-0060. Or you can connect with me on Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy, or on Facebook or LinkedIn, or you can always leave your question or comments in our show notes. And for this episode, that's going to be engagingleader.com forward slash 53, as in episode 53. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.